0: Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage.
1: It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American.
0: My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. My name is Dean Becker. And today our guest will be Maya Salovitz. I'll have her give the correct... pronunciation of that name, but she's the author of a great new book, Help at Any Cost, How the Troubled Teen Industry Cons Parents and Hurts Kids. Uh, Welcome to the program, Maya.
2: Thank you so much, and you actually did pronounce it correctly.
0: Well, what? Well, thank you for that. Then, yes, ma'am. I wanted to, this book is about uh, treatment. It's about tough love. Isn't that extraordinary rendition for our children?
2: In some sense, it really is. And and the amazing thing is that if you are under eighteen, you have no right to be free of any kind of treatment. Um, your parents have absolute power over you. Um, I was stunned to find this out. I thought that you know, if you were going to be locked up from age you know ten to eighteen, that you you, know, you had to have some kind of medical diagnosis or um, some kind of something but actually if your parents want to put you in a program that kidnapped you at 3 a.m from your bed with big men in handcuffs and keep you incommunicado until you're 18 they have the absolute right to do that
0: well, let's talk about what Usually uh, leads up to this this occurrence, this situation, and that's where a kid gets caught with a bag of uh, marijuana, or a couple of pills, or maybe um, having sex with his girlfriend, and, and the parents are convinced by these counselors that it's yes.
1: a. Go ahead.
2: Um, I mean, basically, again, because no diagnosis is required. If you mouth off to your parents, or are caught smoking pot, or um, they just think you're not doing well enough and need to be shaped up. They can send you. Um, and I have found in, in talking with kids who've been in this program and, t- and talking with parents, that there are an enormous number of people who are basically, their diagnosis is teenager. Um, You know, they were a little bit obnoxious. They smoked a few joints. And the thing that really shocks me is that it's the baby boom generation who, you know, if you look at the statistics, they, you know, smoked more pot, had more sex, had more pregnancies, had more violence, had more crime, had all manner of higher levels of um, problems than this generation. And yet, you know, these kids, you know, smoke a joint or two and off it is to boot camp.
0: Yes, and let's talk about these boot camps. Uh, I'm. Relieved, I think your book indicates that this this uh, method of tough love is not as predominant, not as widespread as it once was. But these boot camps and these wilderness camps still exist. Tell us a bit about those, please.
2: Yeah, um, they basically um, there's about a hundred to two hundred organizations that practice what I call tough love, and what I mean by that is that the idea of the program is to break you down emotionally and physically until you admit total powerlessness and then build you up in their image. Um, Now, I should say, in fairness, some wilderness programs claim to, you know, be kind and gentle and be just like, you know, camping out in the woods. The problem is, since there's no regulation, any program can sell itself as anything. So there's a really horrific story in my book where um, some very, you know, nice, decent parents wanted some help for their kid. And they thought they were sending him to a Boy Scout camp, essentially. And what it was was a really tough boot camp. And over the course of several weeks, he starved to death and slowly died of a ulcer that would have been treatable. But they didn't believe his complaints, even when he was um, urinating and defecating on himself and was losing about thirty pounds. And he died.
0: And that's that's the point, isn't it? Uh, that if these kids are not penitent, if they don't uh, adopt the credo uh, of the organization that has them under control that they are ostracized, alienated, and dehumanized.
2: Basically, I mean, the problem is that the programs have the attitude that these are all lying, manipulative, scummy addicts, basically. And so if the kid complains of a health problem, problem oh he's just faking in order to try to get home and in fact this most recent death that happened in florida in january of a 14 year old boy um what basically came about he apparently um could not continue exercising and the the guards or drill sergeants or whatever you want to call them kicked him and put ammonia in his face and punched him and smushed his head and slammed him against the wall and he died
0: I I think it uh it's just an outrage that that you know the kid caught with a couple of joints is is destroyed uh because the parents are afraid as you say they they seek help at any cost and it's the insurance uh excuse me it is the counselors of these treatment centers that that convince the parents many times they're their former patients themselves let's talk about that
2: um yeah i mean the What these counselors do is they've been sort of inculcated into this idea that um, if you smoke pot, two weeks from now you're going to be shooting heroin, and or you know these days two weeks from now you're going to be shooting or snorting oxycontin or uh, you know the latest demon drug methamphetamine. Um, So the they literally tell parents. Your child will be dead in weeks if you don't send him to our program. And parents don't realize that these are not really experts. They, you know, they react as though they've been giving a cancer diagnosis from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And, you know, if Memorial Sloan Kettering tells you to take a drug that's going to make your hair fall out and do all kinds of other things that, you know, normally you wouldn't do, um, you're going to do it because, you are you know, this is a big deal doctor telling you this. And these parents are extremely vulnerable because they, they don't know that this stuff has not been proven to work and that these are not really experts.
0: I know if you reach back in time, uh, 20 years, perhaps even 10 years ago, that insurance companies would oftentimes pay at least a portion of these treatments but they've seen the the light in that regard this this normally the, the cost of this now befalls the parents themselves am I right
2: yes yes I mean insurance really does not cover this anymore because um, and this is actually somewhat of a sad thing I mean the research was pretty clear that there is no advantage for inpatient over outpatient addiction treatment for the vast majority of patients that was largely because the addiction treatment field had this assumption that you know marijuana smokers need thirty days inpatient just like heroin injectors do and you know what the heroin injectors really needed more treatment than that and the marijuana smokers really needed less for the most part And so this sort of one-size-fits-all let the insurance companies off the hook for covering anything. And so people were massively over-treated, and now people are massively under-treated. And so, you know, to get the help that you need is really, really difficult in the current system.
0: Now, You mentioned marijuana versus heroin. I know that uh, many times a hard drug user uh, may reach his dead end, may want to uh, seek a hospital bed to seek treatment, and yet there are, I'll say it, too many marijuana users who've been forced into treatment taking up those beds that could be used elsewhere.
2: Well, you won't actually find um, marijuana smokers in detox beds in hospitals, um, uh, but you will in these inpatient facilities that are drug rehabs um, find, um, especially where it's court-mandated, you will find that people are there who don't, have, don't meet the diagnostic criteria for needing inpatient treatment by any stretch of the imagination, and this is especially true with teenagers. Um, the thing that a lot of people don't realize about teen treatment is that there is research that suggests that if you um, simply congregate deviant teens together, rather than helping each other get straight, they will teach each other how to get high. So, like, when you put the, um, you know, pot smokers in with the um, crack smokers, um, you're going to get pot smokers who now know where to buy crack. And you're also going to get this phenomenon where, you know, the people who have the really dire, involved, scary story seem much cooler. And so you get what they call contagion, and it is not what you want. I, I still don't understand why. I mean, some centers do this, but a lot of them don't. They don't segregate people by problem severity. And so, you know, you end up in situations where, you know, I I literally talked to one girl where she, um, you know, had smoked some pot and in rehab she met a girl who did coke and then they went out and, you know, did coke together.
0: You know, I I sometimes get uh, uh, local listeners, uh, people via the email uh, asking me, what's a good treatment? Center. Who who knows what they're doing? I know that here in Houston, Senecor uh, was king, uh, as well as in some other major cities back in the '70s. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, have you heard of them? Are they still around? Who is a good choice? Where can we find legitimate help for our children that may need it?
2: Um, well, I would not recommend any particular place, but there are certain questions that you can ask. I mean the. The one thing I will say is that some of the academic research centers are providing some of the best treatment around um, because they're actually studying what works and what doesn't. and so, and they're not only studying drugs. um and so if you end up in a control group, at least you're going to be getting some kind of legitimate treatment, um, but the uh, unfortunately, a lot of the mainstream uh, addiction treatment providers have this attitude that the 12 steps are the only way. And 12-step recovery works for a lot of people, but it is not the only way. And treatment centers shouldn't be basically indoctrinating people into that method if that's not what the people want. And it is especially problematic for kids because the 12-step ideology starts with this notion that if you... Um, you have to admit you're an addict, you have to admit you're powerless, you have to surrender to a higher power, um, and you are told that you have a 90% chance of relapse. And most of these kids are not addicts yet. And so accepting that identity at a time when their identity is fragile is, is not a very good idea. But if you want to find good treatment, what you want to do is ask ask the program what their attitude is, You know what options they offer, um, ask about... Um, you know, how much they let you communicate with the outside world, because if they don't let you communicate much, that's a red flag. Um, Ask about their attitudes towards confrontation, because if they believe that people need to be broken down and humiliated, or they won't tell you people need to be humiliated, but if they believe that people need to be confronted strongly, um, you know, that is not good practice. What you want to do, really, is find programs that are kind and empathetic, because the research is pretty clear that, the better your bond with a counselor, the more they understand you and you feel connected to them, the more likely you are to get better. And conversely, the more the counselor confronts you and attacks you, the more likely you are to drink and take drugs. So it's really a matter of finding a place that fits you and finding somebody that you feel comfortable with um, and asking the right questions. because There are a lot of good programs out there, but they are not necessarily easy to find.
0: All right. Well, fair enough. Uh, You know, in reading your book, a couple of the words I wrote wrote down. I want to just kind of go over them here. Kidnapping. Kidnapping, torture, humiliation, deprivation, isolation, starvation, perversion, rape, injury, forced marches, marathon exercise routine, the horror of the staff and the fellow patients riding herd on those who dissent to the regimen. And uh, eventually some of these situations become one of a type of extortion, threatening to keep certain family members longer or sometimes threatening to kick the family member out of the program. Go ahead.
2: Oh, it's it's the things that have been done in the name of saving people from drugs are are horrifying. I mean, it's it's really the use of fear, um, kind of shuts down the higher regions of your brain, and you just become prepared to do anything, you know, because oh my god, my kid's going to die, so I have to do anything, you know, and and people get really, really, really extreme, and you know, parents are told. Um, I think you're referring to the story of Richard Bradbury, where the parents were told that their Bradbury's sister had a very serious problem and the parents were told if they didn't put Richard who didn't have any problem at all into the program that they would throw out the daughter who really did have a problem and so um you know it it was horrific and it was um you know completely unnecessary and um you know what is actually done to the kids within the programs in terms of you know sort of constant humiliation constant emotional abuse um, the regime is set up so that for example kids have to spend you know 12 hour days sitting on hard back chairs and flapping their arms in order to get called on and if they don't participate they get thrown on the floor and restrained now fortunately the organization that pioneered that so-called technique um, no longer exists but unfortunately there are about seven or eight programs that still use that method that are still open
0: well you know there are there's just a whole Conglomerate of uh, uh, people. There, are, there are escort services, kidnap services, really yeah. that that ho- that grab your youngster, cuff them, and take them offshore to some of these camps. Let's talk about that aspect.
2: Well, I mean, it amazes me that people think that this is a good idea because basically, what you're doing is, you know, what's the place where you usually feel safest? At home <laughs> in your bed at night, and here they are sort of aiming for maximal disorientation. I mean, it's sort of taken straight out of the CIA handbook for how to interrogate suspects. You know, disorient them, get them in the middle of the night, get them when they're confused, make them feel strange and weird take them out of their beds, you know, handcuff them. Um, And then, you know, unfortunately, often the escorts lie to the kids about where they're going and what they're doing to get them to be compliant. And then when they get there, they get this horrible shock of being in this place where, you know, if they say the wrong thing or move the wrong way, they are restrained or attacked. Um, And so, you know... Kidnapping is known to be traumatic. I mean, people have got post traumatic stress disorder from simply being kidnapped out of their bed at night. Um now of course the parents are standing by and saying, you know, oh we love you son while they, you know, take you off, but um I still don't think that really mitigates the, you know, trauma of it because you feel very betrayed by your parents when that's done. Um and you know nobody has researched how this affects people and you know if you had when the people get into the program they aren't like kind of given time to acclimate or whatever they're simply thrown into the routine and and forced to you know follow whatever they're supposed to do and they're not often very well instructed on the rules so of course they violate them and and then they get more punishment so it's uh, you know i mean and the really scary thing too is that they don't do any criminal background checks on the people that work for these escort services so you've got like sex offenders, literally people who've molested their own children, um, and this is documented, who go into people's houses in the middle of the night and take teenage girls out of their beds in their nightclothes. Um, and, you know, with our society's current hysteria over pedophilia, which is truly horrible and, and you know, um, should be, we should be worried about, I don't understand how parents don't get that this is a bad idea.
0: Well, you know, in that uh, oft times doctors recommend that we use a certain uh, type of pill, certain medication that uh, winds up later to have major complications, so too did many of these doctors recommend to the parents to send their children to these, these treatment centers. Uh, your thoughts on, on that?
2: Well, I think, unfortunately, we have had a very, very low standard of proof for what works in mental health and addiction treatment. And so basically, um, anybody who said, hey, I got a cure, people would come rushing over and, you know, you get a few stories about I was saved by this, and then everybody pours money into it, and it's suddenly, you know, a established treatment. Um, And, you know, medicine used to be like that 100 years ago, and then we discovered, you know, clinical trials so that we could weed out the placebos and the harmful things. Now, not that that system by any means is perfect, and not that it's easy to do research in this area, but it can be done and it should be done and it needs to be done so that at the very least we know that we're doing no harm
0: well we've got just uh, less than a minute left Uh, we've been speaking with Maya Slavitz the author of Help at Any Cost how the troubled teen industry cons parents and hurts kids Maya uh, is there a website you might like to point folks to your closing thoughts
2: oh yes absolutely it's www.helpatanycost.com and um, I urge people to become informed about this so that in case they should need help for their children um, they can find effective help and not harm them and so that you know these kids can um, get much better care
3: well
0: with that i, I will call it an end but i, I do appreciate it maya and uh, stay in touch
2: thank you so much all right take care bye now
1: hey this is tommy chong for the cultural baggage show telling everybody out there don't let free speech go up in smoke man
0: it's time to play name that drug by its side effects dehumanization solitude degradation deprivation dehydration starvation injury humiliation torture suffocation untimely teenage deaths time's up the answer is not a drug it is drug treatment tough love Okay, uh Colleen uh, McCool, she's a, a, a letter writer up in Stephenville, Texas, and she uh, wrote an LTE that caught my attention. And uh, I guess in that we can't get anybody, no drug warriors, to come on the show to defend the first of the eternal wars, so I've decided to locate the authors of such powerful LTEs published in the newspapers of America and to put their thoughts and their voices on the Drug Truth Network.
3: This is a letter... I wrote in response to a letter to the editor in the McAllen Monitor. Drug war, a ruse for greed and fascism. Amen, Andreas Martinez. Leaders responsible for the current quagmire will have to answer to a higher power for their crimes against humanity. It's time to end the terror by changing our intrusive big bully policies, both foreign and domestic. The monetary costs are staggering, and the human suffering is unconscionable. War is the tool governments use to make us more docile, more accepting of their waste of our precious lives and resources. Prohibition triggers violence and crime, plus it destroys families. There are an estimated 9 million American children orphaned because of the drug war corruption abounds the biggest scandal is big corporations destroying democracy by lining the pockets of lawmakers influence peddling works for those who worship the almighty dollar but works against freedom from oppression which americans once held most dear drugs kill over 26 percent of those who die each year in the united states tobacco alcohol Pharmaceuticals kill about a quarter of us. Less than 1% die from all illicit drug use. Not a, No deaths are attributed to marijuana. The drug war hysteria is bogus and takes our eyes off the real killers we tolerate. I am a once proud American because my country once stood for freedom from oppression. America now has the dubious honor of being number one in the world for having more people in prison than any other. The land of the used-to-be-free is the most incarcerated nation in history. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Bonnie Colleen McCool in Stephenville, Texas.
0: That sound you hear is your tax dollars and your discretionary money falling into the hands of cops and violent gangs. According to a white paper just released by the city of Hartford, Connecticut, each year 50 billion is given to law enforcement, 175 billion to the criminal gangs. $225 billion per year fluttering into the fires of Prohibition, $616 million per day, $26 million per hour, $428,000 a minute and $7,134 per second. I want to thank Colleen for that report. And if you would like to read the white paper I was just speaking of, this was published following a massive conference that we reported on here uh, and, uh, last fall in Hartford, Connecticut. And it was uh, featured judges, DEA, cops, a mayor, hundreds of other people. Please visit our website, which is drugtruth.net, and click on the white paper link. That's just under the Century of Lies pick. I also want to thank uh, Doug McVeigh and Mr. Phil Jackson. Our reporters work very hard each week to bring the unvarnished truth about the drug war to your ears. I also want to congratulate uh, Pennsylvania's Glenn Greenway with today's 75th edition of the Poppygate Report.
4: The drug czar is still trying to frighten parents. According to the Office of National Drug Control Policy, one in seven kids under 18 take unsupervised trips during spring break. They claim that this figure came from travel industry experts. Actually, travel industry experts say the drug czar is full of baloney. The Boston Herald reported on March 16th that, according to the Student Youth Travel Association, about 15%, that is, about one in seven, of the young people traveling during spring break are high school students. They have no figures for how many of those students are unsupervised or how many are 17 or younger. The Drug Czar's office admitted to the faulty math. They also said they would post a correction, which had not yet been done at the time of this writing. The SYTA claims there are record numbers of students going somewhere on spring break these days. They note, however, that thousands of them are using the time to do things other than party, such as interviewing for internships and even doing volunteer work. It's laudable to try discouraging young people from abusing alcohol and other drugs, but it will only work if we give young people alternative activities, provide them with honest information in a rational manner, and encourage adults to be better parents and role models. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of drugwarfacts.org.
5: And now, another black perspective on the drug war. I remember growing up on the streets of Brooklyn back in the 70s. Back then, drivers risked losing their car antenna while parked on the streets at night because gang members would snap them off to make zip guns with. What's a zip gun? Well, back in the day, if you wanted to be well-armed, you had to make yourself a homemade handgun. The stolen car antenna was just the right size for a 22 caliber bullet to fit into. The barrel and bullet were then secured to a small block of wood, and a firing mechanism was improvised from a rubber band and paper clip. A well-made zip gun could be very dangerous at short range. Poorly made, it was likely to misfire or blow apart in the user's hand. You don't see many homemade single-shot zip guns anymore. Nowadays, teenage gangsters have automatic weapons that can spray hundreds of rounds a minute. These powerful weapons are very expensive, but that's not a problem because today's gangbangers all have high-paying jobs selling illegal drugs. Plants that once grew freely by the roadside now bring top dollar, thanks to prohibition. If prohibition ended tomorrow, those plants would become practically worthless overnight. If that ever happened, teenagers who wanted to play with guns would just have to join the army or relearn the art of making zip guns. I'd be satisfied with either outcome. How about you? For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson.
0: Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling
1: heroin featuring Glenn Greenway. Since the Taliban edict forbidding poppy cultivation was lifted following the U.S. invasion in 2001, Afghanistan opium production has increased from 185 to nearly 5,000 tons today. The poppies of U.S.-occupied Afghanistan are now the source of 90% of the world's black market heroin. The U.N. Office on Drugs and Crime reports that Afghan poppy cultivation is up 40% this year. The same agency said this week that Central Asian countries near Afghanistan are experiencing the fastest growth in HIV AIDS in the world, mainly among injecting drug users and in prison populations. This week, the U.S.-supported government of Afghanistan encouraged its drug lords to invest their illegal profits in the war-shattered country. The shamelessly transparent hypocrisy of Poppygate allows the U.S. to arrest 1.6 million of its citizens on drug possession charges each year, while simultaneously overseeing the manufacture and distribution of nearly all the world's black market heroin. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed this edition of Cultural Baggage. Um, we hit the hat trick this week. Three new uh, radio affiliates have joined the Drug Truth Network, WCVF in Buffalo, New York, WAVM in Boston, Massachusetts, and WIDR in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That makes 55 stations. Next week's guest on the Drug Truth Network is Mr. Cliff Thornton, who's running for governor in the state of Connecticut and who was instrumental in the Hartford White Paper we spoke of earlier. Quote, true, the founding father had provided for a specific right to bear arms, but the only reason they had nothing to say about the right to plant seeds was because it never would have occurred to them that any state might care to abridge that right. After all, they were writing on hemp paper. That from Michael Pohl in Harper's Magazine. And, uh, my friends, it's really up to you. You will make the change, you will make the difference. Visit our website, inprohibition.org. And again, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world. On behalf of Engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Tap
1: dancing on the air to an